you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Tobias Kremer. Tobias is a PhD candidate at the Department of Politics and International Studies here in Cambridge. His doctoral research looks at the relationship between religion and recent nationalist political movements in Western Europe and the United States. We discuss the so-called religion gap, where church attendance is one of the strongest predictors for voting against the radical right, the secularisation of traditionally religious political movements, and the role of Christianity as an identity marker. Toby spent the past year or so interviewing politicians and members of the church, and his argument basically builds on those conversations. The story that emerges is quite complicated, but worth hearing. I definitely changed my mind on a few things by the end. So here's Tobias Kremer. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. I personally am brought up in a, uh, in a house of my mother as a Lutheran minister, so I grew up uh, in, a, in a relatively religious household with a church, so that always interested me. And my father's side was actually, on a, he worked in politics, so this intersection has always interested me uh, as I grew up. Um, and then I started going throughout my university to always work uh, very much at this intersection of politics and religion. I worked uh, on it, especially in international relations, for quite a long while. Um, worked my MPhil thesis here in Cambridge, actually, on the geopolitics of Islam. Um, but then I went into the uh, to the US and did my master's uh, at Harvard for two years, my MPP. Uh, and it happened to be the same time uh, of the US elections of 2016. Uh, so when when the whole Trump saga started and, and Donald Trump uh, was in the campaign, surprised everybody by winning it. Uh, and I was just surprised by, on the one hand, uh, most of my, so the Kennedy School where I was at Harvard is a very, very secular place, very, very left-wing, left-wing liberal place, and all of my friends were uh, the common place, the, the, the common prejudice, so to speak, would be, oh yeah, this is all these crazy religious evangelicals voting for Trump, uh, and they are pushing uh, for all these um, social conservative things such as abortion, etc., etc., uh, and what struck me was because I had a lot of friends who actually did go to church. I knew a lot of um, theologians at Harvard uh, and also from my own experience back in Europe uh, was that the people I knew who were religious or went to, went to church were actually the most critical of Trump. Uh, so they actually aligned without knowing it with these with my secular left wing liberal friends. Uh, but they didn't know. So but the, uh, the left wing liberal, liberal friends wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, that that would be the case. Um, so we usually have the prejudice everywhere that, well, they're, they're, we have reactionaries or like very conservative religious people, and then we have like right-wing populists, and they're actually doing the same thing. They're part of the same backlash. Uh, but ju- that just didn't ring true to me. So then I started looking a bit into the statistics, uh, looking into how does this actually play out um, in Germany. Then I just realized that, well, actually, this this stereotype that we have even in academic literature doesn't really ring true with the data we have and with the uh, developments we have that for instance uh, yes Trump was was uh, strongly supported by white evangelicals but then he was also perceived to be the least religious um, GOP candidate in recent history uh, and he was actually opposed by quite a large part of the uh, evangelical clergy similarly if you if we look to Europe we actually see that church leaders here are amongst the most outspoken, uh, against right-wing populism, one only has to think of uh, Pope Francis and his support of immigration. So all of these dissonances then really triggered me to uh, to look a bit more deeply into this. So I started at in, back in the U.S. even 
uh, writing a paper about that. Uh, and then I actually started working in Germany and as it continued this right-wing populist wave, uh, both in Europe and the United States, eventually decided that I uh, want to work on it, that I want to write a book on it, that I actually wanted to uh, clarify something where I had the impression that both the literature um, and, the, and, and journalism to a large extent is just not understanding what is actually going on, who these right-wing populists are, what they really want, uh, what it is about, uh, and the extent to what their demands are actually quite different from what we are used to uh, with, uh, let's say, reactionary or very conservative uh, Christians, that these are actually two very different set of actors. So that's how you got involved. And it sounds like what got you interested in the topic was this weird disconnect between associating right-wing politics with evangelical Christianity on the one hand, but also someone like Donald Trump is one of the least religious presidents in modern history, right? So the interest started in America, but your research started in Germany. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that and yeah. how it relates to the, the bigger picture? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, what, what really struck me was, I think, seeing what was happening in the United States, realizing uh, that this is a development that was different from what we had in the United States to that day, because before we, we had really this like religious right and social conservatives was about abortion, it was about gay marriage, etc., etc. And the people who supported Trump, like Trump didn't talk about abortion, Trump was pro-choice. Uh, Trump has no issue with, uh, with gay marriage uh, personally before he became a uh, candidate. And uh, I mean, there were several issues in this respect. But what is interesting is that traditionally would always say, oh yeah, in Europe, our right-wing politics, as all of our politics, is much more secular. Um, and in this respect, uh, we, we can't compare. So if in Europe, churches are against right-wing populism, that is just normal, because our right-wing populists are secular. Whereas in the US, uh, you would always associate right-wing populist movements uh, with what was called the Christian right, evangelical Christianity, um, all of these movie, movements the, that, that emerged in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, around uh, around Ronald Reagan. And what really struck me was that actually, for once, we see something that is really similar between the United States and Europe, that actually uh, this right-wing populist movement, this right-wing populist wave that we see on both sides of the Atlantic seems to be nourished by the same, um, the same, the same wishes, the same um, discontentment with, uh, with liberal politics. Uh, and, and really that actually, maybe to an extent, we are seeing the United States moving closer to Europe in its politics and that it is becoming more secular and less driven by religious reasons. So this is why I decided to make, uh, to do a comparative case study um, to look at Germany, France and the United States. I initially also had the UK in, uh, but then for time reasons uh, and also uh, for specific reasons, I, I dropped out the UK. It's actually relatively interesting that the UK... Um, is the odd one out. So right-wing populists in all other countries do reference religion quite a lot. So they talk about uh, the Judeo-Christian West, as, uh, as Steve Bannon does. He said, I'm an academy in Italy about the Judeo-Christian West. Uh, in Pegida in Germany, people run around with uh, crosses in the German national colors. Uh, in France, you have um, the Front National talking about France being the first, the first daughter of the of the Church and being a Catholic country. The same in Italy, you have Salvini with his um, like 
basically referring to the Holy Spirit during his campaign speeches. Uh, that is not the case in the United Kingdom. So it was very, very striking that although you had similar um, sentiments and a similar movement of right-wing populism in parts of the Leave campaign, a similar discontentment uh, with left-wing liberal politics or, or just liberal politics and liberal democracy in general, with uh, liberal ideology in general. This is a very similar backlash, uh, but there were no references to religion. I mean, there's a host of reasons we can talk about that later if you want why the UK uh, is an exception. But yes, this is why I dropped the, uh, the UK. Um, and then I moved, basically decided to Germany, France and the US because I think these three case studies are quite... Uh, good in that they, in all of th these three cases, right and populist reference religion a lot. Um, but they're also very, very different in their institutional setup. So you, you have Germany where you have a Protestant and a Catholic uh, church that are basically state churches. They're both official churches. Um, I, I mean, like with different constitutional uh, settings, but they're like, they're very much part of the establishment. They have a, they have a crucial part in the constitution. Uh, France, you have a very Catholic country historically, uh, but with laicity, one of the strongest, most secularist setup of church-state relations um, of all countries. Um, and then the country itself is also becoming increasingly secular, but it's like it's culturally quite Catholic, but uh, a very strong secularist movement uh, against religion from the state, but also from within society. And then you have the United States, which, which legally or constitutionally is actually almost as secular as France, but then is very, very religious, culturally, very, very Protestant, very, very evangelical. So these different uh, parts that play in uh, were really interesting to see, uh, for me to consider what's the driving forces, uh, what are the driving forces, uh, what decides in the end how religious actors, voters react to right-wing populists using religion, what incites right-wing populists to use religion, etc. Um, and what I basically do, so I don't, I don't do too much quantitative stuff because other people are better at crunching numbers than I am and there are actually a lot of surveys out there uh, that look at the voting behavior of, uh, of Christians, whether Christians tend to be more or less um, prone to right-wing populist positions, whether they vote for these parties, etc. Um, and if you want to, I can talk about uh, the voting behavior as well. But what I really am focusing on is um, the, the qualitative aspect. So. Uh, I do elite interviews. I try to understand what are these right-wing populist policies about? What do right-wing populists actually mean when they say, when they make religious references? What do they mean when they say uh, the Christian Occident, the Judeo-Christian West? Is this really, uh, do they mean this in theological terms? Or is this rather an identity marker that is about culture and is actually completely dissociated from religion as a belief system? Uh, and then I look at, uh, and then I interview, so on the one hand, I interview right-wing populist politicians, and then I interview uh, church leaders uh, from different denominations to ask them to, to compare how does their vision of religion differ from right-wing populist uh, idea of religious references, and how do they react to this? Do they see this as positive, negative? What is their strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis this cooptation attempts um, by the populist right? And then I also uh, interview uh, leaders of other political parties, of competitor parties, again, to have a reference of how do they see religion, what, what do they, uh, how do their perceptions or their ideas of religion and politics differ from right-wing populists. And it's actually really, really interesting that when you talk to these people, uh, it does really seem like 
uh, that when right-wing populists talk about religion, it's really about identity. When they say uh, Christianity is actually much more Christendom as a cultural concept, it's it's really... Um, so one of my questions that I ask all of my interview partners is, what does Christian identity actually mean to you? And all the clergy I talk to, and actually almost all of the mainstream party politicians from other, other parties I talk to, they all start talking theology. They talk about the resurrection of Christ, they talk about the gospel, they talk about uh, the Trinity, etc., etc. When I ask the same questions to right-wing populists, they talk about culture, they talk about identity, they talk about heritage, they talk about architecture, about law, about like having a church in the center of town. You don't go to the church necessarily, but it's just nice to have it. It's like the things um, Alexander Gauland, who is the, one of the leaders of the AfD in Germany, said uh, very famously, for us, we are not a Christian party in a religious sense. Uh, for us, Christianity is only the heritage of our fathers and we respect the heritage of our fathers, and therefore, it's not that we believe in God or that we would follow the uh, would be disciples of Christ, etc. It's really this um, this identitarian moment. Um, and then, what is also very, very interesting is that almost all of the people I talk to on the right and populist side at some point also would uh, reference Islam. So, to a large extent, they would say, "Well, it's about." Uh, culture and heritage, etc. And we have a church. We don't have a we don't have a mosque in our village. Uh, we are we have free days on Sunday and not on Friday. Um, we eat uh, fish on Fridays uh, and and no halal meat and we like etc. etc. So um, and that was untriggered. None of the other people I interviewed would reference Islam. So we can also see here that to a large extent, um, this reference of Christianity uh, comes in as a re rejection. Uh, of immigration, in particular, and a rejection of, of Islam. Uh, and maybe very briefly a word here on how I actually define right-wing populism. Maybe I should have done that um, earlier. But right-wing populism uh, if you, is probably, I mean, there are a lot of discussions out there. There are thousands of books out there. So you can write five PhDs about the definitions of right-wing populism. Um, but the the definition that is emerging more and more that is like a working definition if you don't really want to get, get into that is that right-wing populism is basically uh, defined through a triangular relationship between on the one hand the us that's the good the homogeneous people um, like the, the, the people on the bottom the real people and then a set of two others one internal other that's the liberal elite uh, who is really um, undermining the, the, the coherent group identity of the of the us from within. This is the corrupted liberal elite. And then the external other. And the external other, what is interesting, um, so left-wing populism is actually the same with the internal other. So it's, it's but that's a dual uh, relationship, it's not a triangular relationship. What makes right-wing populism special is that you have this third uh, actor, which is the external other. But what is interesting is that this external other for decades has usually been defined in ethnic terms. So it would be uh, the Turk, the Pakistani, the uh, you have it, like the Maghrebian, France, etc., etc. Uh, what we have seen in the last 10, 20 years uh, is that increasingly this external other is more and more defined in cultural or even religious terms much rather than in um, ethnic ethnic terms. So it's not the Turk anymore, it's not the Maghrebian anymore, it's not the Pakistani anymore, but it's the Muslim uh, and Islam. And it is really only through this cultural religious definition of the other in such religious terms 
that now it seems logical to define the us in Christian terms, but this is very much an ex negativo uh, definition of, of the us. This is not through belief or theology that we are Christian, but it's much rather through uh, the idea that, well, if they are Muslim and they threaten us, well, if they are defined in religious terms, maybe we should define the us in religious terms as well. So it sounds like for these right-wing populist movements, Christianity should be understood as a kind of identity marker and less so a set of beliefs. But you found, as well as this, that for the, what you might call, authentic Christians who go to church and subscribe to these these beliefs as well as the identity, um, being a Christian in this sense can uh, almost immunise you or make you less likely to vote for these right-wing populist parties. Can you tell us more about yeah. why that's uh, that's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of need, it's, it's always it's always difficult to talk about authentic Christians or less authentic Christians. I, I definitely think there's a conversation to be had. Uh, and like one thing that I think is quite important to me as well. I'm not saying that right-wing populists are like fake Christian and they do something something bad. I mean there is a discussion to be had whether we want to define. Christianity in different terms in our society, whether we want to define it in cultural terms or rather in religious terms. Um, but what but that is a discussion to be had. Um, but what is true is that it seems that the Christendom that right-wing populist reference is very different from the Christianity that most of our that we would traditionally understand as such by church leaders, um, as defined through the doctrine of the church, etc. etc. So there are two competing definitions. Um, and that is very much the idea that one really interesting development that we have been seeing in the last 20, 30 years is the dissociation of belief and belonging. So traditionally, religion would have both belief and belonging. You are you are a Christian because you believe in um, the gospel, in Jesus Christ, etc., etc. That's the belief part. That's the personal belief, but also belonging because you're part of a church, you're part of a parish, you're part of a community. A group identity as Christian is both. And most religious doctrine would say, uh, most churches would say that you need both. You can't have just one or the other. Um, then you had for a couple of years the movement that uh, some people would say, oh, you can have spirituality uh, without conformity. Uh, so the whole idea that people might stop going to church, but actually they're still religious inside. So this is then dissociating belief and belonging and just saying, oh, we just take the belief part. Uh, now what is interesting is that right-wing populists seem to take only the belonging part and say like, well, we don't necessarily believe in God and the church, et cetera, et cetera, but we still want to feel culturally um, Christian. Now, what is interesting, as you say, is that uh, these right-wing populist references to Christian belonging or Christian identity uh, seem to be most successful or resonate most with those Christians or those parts of the population um, that are actually the least religious. So these are uh, either non-practicing uh, non-practicing uh, Christians or actually outright atheist people. Um, so we see that especially especially in Europe, um, that uh, what people call what some social scientists have called the religion gap, that actually um, right-wing populists perform about double as well amongst those uh, amongst those who uh, are the least likely to go to church. They perform double as well amongst uh, irreligious people in Germany, for instance. Uh, than amongst uh, Protestants and Catholics. 
And this religion gap is of different strengths in this, this uh, different countries, but you can see it in France as well, where church attendance used to be one of the strongest predictors for not voting for the Front National. You can see it in Italy, where church attendance is one of the strongest predictors for not voting uh, for uh, for the populist right. You see it in the Netherlands, etc. Uh, now, to be sure, the United States is a bit of a different case um, because there you see that, especially of white evangelicals who are still 25% of the American population, therefore the biggest Christian group on their own, although there are like thousands of different denominations in that as well, so you always have to differentiate. But amongst white evangelicals, Trump did score 81%, uh, which is extremely, extremely uh, strong support. Um, but uh, what is interesting, I and mean, he got more than George W. Bush, for instance, he got more than Mitt Romney uh, in preceding years, although he clearly made less references to religion uh, or like was less authentically perceived as a Christian candidate. Uh, but what is interesting with Trump is that although he performed so very well amongst white evangelicals, he actually among, uh, performed best among those white evangelicals who don't go to church anymore. Uh, so you can see really a development um, that we might actually be rather witnessing the secularization of what used to be the Christian right in America rather than a return of uh, religion uh, in the strong, in a, in a theological, in a belief set uh, terms in the, in the United States. Let's yeah. put a flag there. I'm interested okay. in this religion gap, okay. particularly in Europe. There's a question yeah. here of just what accounts for it. So why yeah. why am I less likely to vote for one of these right-wing populist parties if I am a, a churchgoer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are like tons of different reasons. And because I do uh, qualitative interviews, um, I can't prove. Uh, but what, it, what we do see, uh, see quite strongly is that um, there are basically three different uh, accounts for why why right-wing why religious voters wouldn't vote for uh, right-wing populism? Uh, the first one is that religious people just are through their um, religious beliefs that are tolerance, universalism, uh, help thy love thy neighbor, help the welcome the stranger, etc. They will be less prone to right-wing populist attitudes. Um, that one is debated. So there are. Um, Quite a lot of studies on there that would suggest, yes, that might be true. But then there are also a lot of studies that actually say, well, uh, religious affiliation might actually push you more towards having right-wing populist attitudes, if not necessarily voting behavior. Um, most studies eventually say, well, we can't really, we can't really know. It's, it's not very clear cut. Uh, and in the end, it's most likely that religious people, churchgoers, Christians, are not more or less likely to hold right-wing populist attitudes than the average population or than their atheist neighbors. Uh, however, what is different is that in spite of these similarities and attitudes, they don't vote for right-wing populist parties. So there is a, there is a gap between uh, having average attitudes and not acting on them. Uh, and what comes in here are basically two factors that are very, very important to explaining why uh, Christians don't vote for right-wing populist parties. The one is the availability of a Christian alternative, of an alternative party, of a coherent alternative choice. And the other one is of the, um, of the, uh, the, the, the behavior or the strategies of the churches themselves, whether churches 
the way churches react to right-wing populist um, co-optation attempts. And to start maybe with the party, uh, with the first explanation with the alternative party bit, we see very, very strongly that in countries where you have um, parties that would be considered as Christian alternatives, like Christian Democratic Party in Germany, um, this, like the similar parties in the Netherlands, um, in this case, or until very recently, the uh, the, the, the Republican in France, uh, that if such alternatives are available, right-wing populists don't vote, uh, Christians don't vote right-wing populist parties because they will see, oh, um, well, these right-wing populists don't really represent our values. These, Christ these Christian parties or conservative parties, mainstream conservative parties, they represent both Christian values and Christian belonging. So they, they represent, uh, they want our culture to be Christian, but they also are coherent with Christian values on um, welcoming the stranger, on uh, being being socially conservative on abortion, et cetera, et cetera. Which right-wing populists are not. So that is actually a very interesting uh, development that right -wing you have a lot of right-wing populist parties in Europe who are very, very open towards uh, social, or quite almost progressive uh, on social issues, at least overtly. So you have uh, the Front National saying we are the real defenders of church state separation. You have Gerhard uh, Wilders in the Netherlands saying we are the real defenders of gay rights. You have uh, in Germany the, 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 the AFD saying we are the real defenders of women's rights against against Islam. I mean, it's always against Islam in the end. Uh, but they're actually quite, uh, quite progressive on that. And if you have a party uh, who covers both Christian values and Christian belonging, um, then these uh, Christian voters tend to go with that party. Uh, in, in most cases. Now, the problem is um, that in recent years we have a development that uh, a lot of not just conservative parties, but also uh, left-wing liberal parties, party alternatives, have become increasingly secular uh, in that they uh, not only are not so, uh, socially uh, are not only socially not against social conservatism, but they're also against the idea of uh, Christian culture. So they are progressive in social terms and against the idea of a Christian culture um, and actually at times almost hostile to religion uh, or at least they are perceived as such by many, many religious voters. Uh, and if you then have a lack of choices, religious voters basically have the, uh, the choice what they perceive between pests and cholera between on the one hand um, uh, uh, a left-wing liberal party uh, that refuses both Christian identity and Christian values, and then a right-wing populist alternative so that refuses Christian values, but at least clings on to Christian culture, then they might go for the lesser evil. But it's very clear whenever I talk to, uh, to Christians in my interview, they always say, oh, this is just a lack of choice. It's always a, a pest or cholera. They're never very excited uh, about that. Even in the US, so I just talked to a couple of evangelical leaders in the United States who support Trump, um, but they all say, well, if we had a more coherent democratic party that would actually say, as Christians, you're welcome in our party, uh, way, there would be a quite large part of uh, evangelicals who wouldn't have voted Trump. So, but they perceived the Hillary Clinton campaign, for instance, as a uh, quite religion-hostile um, secularist um, campaign. Uh, and then the second sector, the second factor, which I actually think might... Uh, be as important, if not more important, but which is almost never mentioned in the literature, is the role of churches themselves. So whether churches 
will condemn these attempts uh, by right-wing populist parties, whether they engage in a fight uh, about explaining who who has the monopoly about explaining what religion is, what Christianity is, or whether they uh, go with it in the hope that they might not lose uh, some of their flock. Uh, And what seems to be the dynamic behind that is that Christian uh, clergy in general um, and Christian churches are still quite capable of erecting a social taboo for their members. Uh, So by coming out publicly and strongly condemning uh, right-wing populist uses of religion, they can actually create something of a social firewall uh, that makes it prohibitively expensive for their members uh, to vote right-wing populist parties. So even if they might have right-wing populist attitudes, they wouldn't vote for it because they know that it's not socially acceptable uh, in the church because the Pope says right-wing populist is not good. Uh, and and that that actually seems to be um, quite a strong uh, factor in this. Okay, let's let's return now to yeah. the U.S. because it stands out in a lot of ways yeah. in comparison to the things you're seeing in Europe. So you mentioned this kind of secularization of the sacred. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, churches kind of imposing a cost on voting for right-wing populist parties doesn't look like any of that's happening in the united states so what's going on there yeah so i mean it's interesting to see we might actually with the secularization of the sacred we might actually see for the first time that something similar might be happening in the u.s as i mentioned earlier um the trump campaign for the first time uh was not talking about religious issues uh, as a, as a, although the GOP, which is usually perceived as the main uh, faith party or the party of the Christian right of the United States since the 1970s of 80, or 80s, um, during the primaries in 2016, the people who really referenced religion were people like uh, uh, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, Tony uh, Marco Rubio. Um, they really pushed for that. Trump didn't. Trump was very much about national identity about protectionism about it's much more about respect for your national identity than about religion for trump supporters in this time as i said like trump was pro-choice for quite a long time before people told him you can't be a republican candidate and be pro-choice um and then and then he changed on that he was when he was asked about his favorite uh, bible verse he started talking about the two corinthians uh, although it's the second letter to the Corinthians, but he clearly hadn't read what his speechwriters had written. So he's not, um, and he never, he never claimed in this respect. Um, he's not, he's not even pretending to be uh, particularly pious. He, he didn't have that background. He didn't really ever care about that. And during his campaign, he didn't make a big topic. Uh, later on, a bit more uh, during the the presidential campaign, but in the primary campaign, he really didn't. Um, and it was clear that. The, the candidates of the Christian right lost the primaries. Uh, it's more the secular national populist movement behind Donald Trump and Steve Bannon that won that. And then it was really the, the question, as, as we just mentioned, there was no uh, electoral alternative, really, because they perceived Hillary as being pro-choice, pro-gay marriage, etc., etc., whereas Trump just didn't care uh, or seemed to not care and was ready to put in... Uh, to follow policies that would acquiesce the Christian right on their um, on their demands about uh, Supreme Court justices, etc. Uh, but 
what we see here, the Christian right used to be agenda setters in the Republican Party. Now they just take the breadcrumbs for their support. Uh, and that's like a quite interesting change in dynamic, change in uh, the balance of power within the Republican Party. It seems much more of a, uh, as I said, national populist um, movement now than actually a traditional conservative, uh, so socially conservative or even reactionary movement. Can you make any guesses about what's causing this secularization of what was traditionally a more no. conservatively religious political no. wing? So I think it's generally, I mean, like we, we see the developments of secularization throughout all, all of our societies. Um, and I think that is actually happening. Religious affiliation is decreasing uh, in almost all countries, including the United States. We have uh, the, the growth of the religious nuns uh, who have no religious affiliation is speeding up at amazing speeds in the United States. Only 10 years ago, I think it was still 81% concerning themselves Christians. Now it's uh, less than 67%. Uh, and I think of the uh, under 30s, it's only half of the population now consider themselves Christians. Uh, so we really see a massive loss and it's even stronger in Europe, uh, where many countries such as France and Germany are projected to be minority Christian. Uh, within the next few years. Um, but what I think the literature got wrong is that people assumed when, pe when, when, when the population turns secular, they would become liberal uh, or progressive. And that's just not the case. So what we are witnessing much rather is we now have a new um, secularist right in addition to our traditional Christian right, uh, as well as then a secular left. Um, and I think that the that that in itself is actually the result of the emergence of a new social cleavage. So for those of you without uh, politics PhDs, the social cleavage uh, is basically the the main dividing line in our politics, the main social divide in our politics that defines our political system uh, and the parties that populate it. And traditionally, we had two main divides within within our societies. On the one hand, um, you had the economic cleavage. It was between capitalists, you can imagine it's like a two-by-two two two matrix. You have the, the, the economic cleavage between the, the working class and the capitalists, between socialism and the free market economy. This is the class struggle, if you'd like to think of it in these terms. And then you had a second um, social cleavage uh, that is basically the, the between social conservatives and social liberals um, that is really about um, religion and moral issues. So that is about abortion. This is about church-state separation, et cetera, et cetera. This is the culture wars, if you like to think of it in these ways. Now, what is interesting is that you can map most mainstream parties quite easily on this two-by-two two matrix. So conservatives would be market liberal and socially conservatives, and uh, left-wing parties would be um, socially liberal and, uh, and, and, and for the working class and for redistribution. Now, what is interesting is that these right-wing populist parties don't fit on this anymore. They seem to be much rather, uh, so we see that economically, they go from one end to the other. We have a lot of parties that uh, in Scandinavia that are very market liberal. The Tea Party was very market liberal. Uh, but then you also see the Front National going, basically being more socialist in its economic policy than Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Um, you see the same in the AFD, sometimes even the same parties, the AFD was funded as an anti-Euro neoliberal party. It now is very statist, 
very much uh, close off the borders, protectionist. The same is true with Trump. So these parties oscillate on the economic thing. And I mentioned earlier, the same is true for the um, for the culture wars question, for the social conservatism. Uh, because on the one hand, sometimes they present themselves as we are uh, against abortions, we are very conservative, we are all Christian, etc., etc. But then in the same time, when it's convenient uh, against Islam in particular, um, they will try to present themselves as the defenders of gay rights, the defenders of women rights, the defenders of uh, church-state separation. What they are really about is something different than these traditional cleavages. What they are really about is identity, how to define identity, who are we and who are the others. And that is really interesting uh, because this divide seems to really become dominant in many societies. That these traditional conflicts, they're still there, they're still important. But we seem to have a new dividing line between, on the one hand, those who define identity in individualist, in liberal terms, in cosmopolitan terms. We are citizens of the world, it's us. But um, you, it's basically, we are citizens on the, of the world. And then at the, on the other hand, the only identity markers that are really relevant and acceptable are individual ones, such as my education, my professional success, uh, having gone to university, etc., etc. This is who defines you. If you had asked somebody 40 years ago, who are you? What's your identity? Somebody would have, maybe I would have said, I'm from a German working class city, um, from, from Bochum, and I'm from, from that like Westphalian part. I'm a Lutheran. Uh, I'm German and all of these things. So you would have all these group identities uh, that are important. Nowadays, you people move so much around, they don't have a local identity. Most people are dissociated or like secularized, so they don't have a religious identity. The work, working class identity is not something people would refer to. So all these group identities are basically uh, not only crumbling, but also by in, in inverted commas, the liberal mainstream, uh, questioned as valid identities. These are the, the identities of the losers, of the weak. If you, only if you can't make it, only if you aren't individually successful, do you need to rely on group identities. The problem is now um, that actually about half, if not more, of the population uh, say no group identities are important to us. These things matter. National identity matters. Regional identity matters. Um, class identity matters. Uh, and because all the other identities have evaporated, like religious identity, uh, class identity, etc., national identity is the one that people can still cling on to. And this is where right-wing populists now tap in, because the mainstream parties, uh, or, or our traditional mainstream parties, have basically given up on the group identity issues. So the working most, most left-wing parties that were once communitarian working-class parties now define themselves through left-wing uh, through, through individualist, liberal, cosmopolitan issues such as gay marriage, um, gender rights, etc., etc., which are extremely important, but they are not the same as the traditional communitarian instincts of the working class. The same is true for mainstream right parties, which traditionally would have defined themselves through patriotism or uh, religious affiliation as group identities, now much more fo focus. Uh, on just economic liberalism, libertarianism, and actually open to immigration, etc., etc. And now, as a result, you have this vacuum on the communitarian side, on the group identity side of this new cleavage. And this is where, with the new identity politics of the right, these right-wing populist parties come in. And like the identity politics of the left, this is about 
predefined group identities like sexuality, ethnicity, nationality, etc. But they are saying we are defending the the group identity of the majority rather than the group identity of the minority. Uh, so you have something of like a, a white identity politics that is newly emerging. And it is in this identity politics that then religion can become one of the identity markers. But it's only an identity marker. It's not about faith or religious values. It's possibly the case that some identities aren't acceptable anymore in our mm -hmm. current political environment. Like it's yeah. no longer uh, acceptable to identify yourself as white and the others yeah. as Arab. But it still is very much the case that it is still acceptable to identify yourself as Christian yeah. and the others as Muslims. And in that sense, that kind of trying to reclaiming yeah. of religious identity is just a way of transferring old divides into more modern language that is also more acceptable to yeah. the wider population. Yeah. I don't know if you've got any thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, no, that, that is absolutely the case. So this is a bit uh, what I was mentioning um, when I was saying that traditionally we defined the other in ethnic terms, on racial terms. Um, that is not the case anymore because people have realized Ooh, racism is not socially acceptable. Culturalism is. So it is not okay anymore to say we don't like the Pakistan because of the color of his skin or we don't like the, um, the, 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 I don't know, the Jew or the Turk or whatever because of their origin. Um, but it is still acceptable to say, ooh, uh, culturally, this just doesn't fit together. And it's actually quite interesting that when you talk to, so I talk to a lot of uh, these, these nationalist populist or right-wing populist leaders, um, and none of them, comes over as racist to be entirely honest like like some very old school ones yes i i have met some who are very straightforwardly racist uh but the large majority uh doesn't and i actually don't think that they are racist i do really think that they are almost convinced but it is a, a new culturalism this identity politics um picks up almost the the identity politics of the left so they mirror that to an extent uh, because on the left, people have said, oh, um, culture is important. It is important to say um, multiculturalism and that we respect the culture of the people who, who come in and that they are allowed to have their own culture and their culture should be protected, that there is such a thing as, uh, as minority cultures and minority cultures should be protected. Um, and they are speaking about rights, the right to for their culture to be pr protected and to not be diluted or assimilated by the host culture. So if you think about, I know, like a um, an immigrant population that comes, that is Muslim and comes to a Christian country, that they are allowed to uh, speak, keep speaking their language, speak wearing the clothes, that they don't have to assimilate uh, into into society. Uh, but it's just like a multi multicultural one next to each other. Now, what these right wing populist politicians say, if these minorities have these rights to protect their culture then we have the rights to protect our culture. And they're basically saying, well, um, we want to protect our traditional culture just in the same ways as they do. Now, there's obviously a very different dynamic because it's a majority culture. But it's really hard to argue with that uh, because they're using actually the very same language as the identity politics of the left. So uh, some people, like, like uh, Francis Fukuyama, for instance, just published a book on identity politics actually saying, we won't really, it, it, it's really hard to argue with that um, because by pushing for an identity politics of the left, we have made an identity politics of the right possible and to an extent almost understandable. Um, and it's actually only a non-identitarian, non-identity politics that might be able to solve this. And back to a 
universalism where we, we have to all work together. I mean, like I, I, I don't make a judgment one way or the other, uh, but I do think that that might help explain it. Uh, why it is also so difficult to to fight right wing populists because I do actually think there is a point uh, in that they, they, there are a lot of people who feel that way and who have not been represented uh, in our uh, in our political system and that need a way of representation. What I'm kind of seeing you getting at is also like a, a broadening of what comes under the definition of those right wing populists mm -hmm. because when I look at you know the definition of what it meant to be white or a right wing populist let's say a hundred years ago. Um, many people who are now, you know, aligned with it wouldn't even fall in under that definition. Yeah. You get, you know, under your definition of white Irish people, for example, wouldn't fall yeah. in. And also nowadays, it's interesting that in relying on a Christian identity, you're also bringing in more niches from other countries. Um, mm -hmm. For example, I always think it's quite funny that when you get somebody from from UKIP or um, the, the the French right wing parties talking about Christian identity, they're also kind of inadvertently aligning themselves with right wing parties in Poland or yep. in Hungary. Mm -hmm. But then when you're kind of looking at the Polish and Hungarian immigrants coming into those countries, they, of course, then become the other again. Mm -hmm. But in, in kind of relying on that Christian and especially Judeo-Christian is also often, mm -hmm. I think, a really yep. interesting term yep. that gets used is this kind of broadening that church of who becomes acceptable and who is us. And then also, I think, in many ways, trying to get a stronger alliance against um, whatever the other may be. Yeah, no, absolutely. We do see definitely a movement from traditional nationalism to civilizationism, if that makes sense, from like ethnic nationalism to from like only we only accept people who have been born French for 600 generations and are like white and blah, 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 uh, to a civilization idea of uh, almost a, a picking up on the idea of a clash of civilizations uh, to to take the hunting world, uh, word. And it's almost it's quite interesting. A lot of people uh, I talk to are saying, well, yeah, hunting clash of civilization is almost how they see the world. They really think there is a, uh, um, in, in, in France it's called the, the, the theory of the great replacement. There's a an concerted effort by the liberal elites on the one hand and then by Muslim countries on the other hand to supplant um the the white christian european culture um through getting a lot of immigrants from different cultures in to destroy this traditional traditional culture and there they say this is all civilization this is not just against the french or against the germans this is against western civilization they're just trying to destroy traditional western uh civilization and in this respect it's quite interesting you do have uh an internationalist nationalism uh, to, to a certain extent. I mean, you had like Steve Bannon can very much recommend if anybody wants, wants to watch that movie, The Brink. Um, there's a documentary that just came out, I think this year about Steve Bannon running through all, around Europe and trying to, um, to, to bring together the nationalist causes, uh, and the different right-wing populist parties from, uh, I mean, he claims to have inspired Boris Johnson to the Front National to, uh, the AFD in Germany. Uh, but it is really quite interesting that you see these, um, these movements actually merging together in this and really saying like, we are Western civilization uh, against the onslaught uh, of other cultures coming in. And it's way is significantly less openly um, about ethnicity, uh, although whiteness, I, th I think, still plays a significant role, but it's not it's not Anglo-Saxon races and uh, like I don't know, French races, etc. It's not. It's not the traditional biological racism. It's much more of a cultural civilizationism, if that makes sense. So, thank you very much. That was a fascinating interview. Um, the question we ask all our guests 
after the interview is, could you recommend three books or resources if people want to find out more about this topic? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there are my, my bibliographies, I think, 600 books by now. <laughs> so I'm very happy to send you a lot of that. Um, but no, but like, uh, as I, so one thing I thought was really, really interesting, um, sometimes a bit scary, but also just good to understand how these developments play out is uh, really a movie that came out last year uh, about Steve Bannon and the Trump campaign and how he uh, like tries to rally the nationalist populist cause. And you also realize He's not racist, I don't think. It's like the, the culturalist, uh, etc. But it's quite fun. It felt to me like, oh, somebody put my PhD into a film. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's called The Brink. Uh, it's a documentary. I mean, there are all sorts of problems with it. Some people say, oh, it's way too nice to Steve Burns. Some people say it's uh, just focusing on one personality, not on the movement. But it's definitely a really, really good resource. And it's also just quite, quite fun to watch. Um, Another book that I think is really, really good, one of the first ones I read when uh, looking into the topic uh, was David Goodhart's The Road to Somewhere. It's actually not an academic book, so your supervisors will not like if you quote that. Um, but it is, I think, so David Goodhart is a, is a journalist, and I think before many, many academics, he realized that th there's something going on, that there's a new divide between what he called somewheres and anywheres, with the somewheres being the communitarian group identity side of things, and the anywheres being like the uh, the cosmopolitan liberals, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think he really does it, and you can read it in an afternoon. It's a very good read. There are all sorts of problems, especially he gets the religious part wrong, uh, and he contradicts himself in the book quite often on that, and he actually acknowledged that in the aftermath. So if you want the religious part, that's not complete, but to understand the what's happening with the... Um, uh, the, the different cleavages and the different divides in society. I think that is extremely useful. And then I'm thinking of a third one. Um, if you if you read French, <laughs> uh, there is a French uh, sociologist who's called Olivier Roy. Although I think they have translated into into English now, uh, and it's basically called uh, "Is l'Europe est-elle chrétienne?" Is Europe Christian? Um, where he really picks on, really looks at what do right-wing populists mean when they talk about religion and what do the churches mean this whole dissociation of belief and belonging and he is quite i mean like there are a couple of quite fun quotes in there about well if nowadays you have to, if you want to immigrate to europe you have to pass all these like citizenship tests which are all about like are you are you pro-gay marriage? Are you pro-gender equality? You would say, well, the Pope would not be allowed to immigrate to most European <laughs> countries. Um, and it's actually quite an interesting dynamic to see how we understand, we would say we are a Christian country, but actually in many respects, we are very far apart from what traditionally would constitute the Christian identity. So Olivier Roy, um, is Europe still Christian or is Europe Christian, I think is the, the English title. That uh, would be my third one. L'Europe est chrétienne in French. You can definitely find it. Tobias Kremer, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Tobias Kremer on right-wing populism and Christianity in Europe and the US. If you want to learn more about Toby's research, you can read the write-up that accompanies this episode at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Tobias. The link is also in the show notes. There you will find the books and films Toby mentioned, plus relevant figures and statistics. Also, if you have a moment, we would be really grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. We're just starting out and any feedback helps us improve and others find the show. 
If you would like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.